Well, good morning again. Wow. Either Every time I'm up here, either you guys really like to hear my joke of, you must all be sleeping, or you guys really just don't like saying hi to people in the morning. Good morning. There we go. You guys are awake. That's better. Um, I'm excited to be here. I'm glad that Steve uh, asked if I would be able to do this. I'm excited for this opportunity. I'd just like to ask you to open up to Micah chapter 6. And as you're flipping there, I'd just like to pray one more time. Just pray uh, pray for Steve and Heather and the girls as they're gone. Um, and also pray one more time just for us as we seek to, to understand God a little bit better this morning. Let's just pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the rain. Thank you for the way you provide for us, um, even in the small ways, the ways that we don't even notice. But you're there. You're constantly providing for us. And we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what he means to us, everything that he is for us, and what you've done through him on the cross, what you've accomplished through him. We thank you that we can stand here and praise you and worship you as redeemed children. We thank you for Steve and for Heather and the girls and for um, just their presence here in our church. We thank you so much for Pastor Steve as he preaches faithfully each and every Sunday, the ministries that he has um, in different seminaries, conferences, all the speaking that he does. And we thank you that that you've made him a part of our family here. We pray for them specifically as they're gone this weekend. We pray for traveling mercies and safety. And we pray that you'd bring them home safely to us this week. Lord, now as we study your word, we pray that you would open our hearts, encourage us, rebuke us where we need it, and help us to see Jesus more clearly. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Micah chapter 6. So I'm going to ask you a question. And perhaps you've heard somebody say this, or you've said it yourself. But this is the question. What do you think God wants me to do with my life? Anybody ever, anybody ever ask that? I have. Seems like I'm doing that all the time, but what does God want me to do with my life? Sometimes it's just turned into a statement where we say, I'm not sure what God wants me to do with my life. I'm not sure what, what he wants me to do, how he wants me to serve, where he wants me to go. Or this one, you may have heard somebody say, I'm just waiting for the Lord to show me clearly what he wants me to do, specifically. I'm waiting for specifics. I want God to put the writing on the wall. That's what I need. And then I'll go serve God. As Christians, we sometimes spend a lot of time thinking and praying about God's will for our lives. And we get anxious and stressed over the fact that we have no idea what God wants for us. Because the Bible doesn't tell us specifically what what we're supposed to do in some areas of our lives. The, the Bible does not tell you what church to go to. It doesn't tell you what ministry to be involved in. It doesn't tell you what car to buy, who to marry, and what color to paint the kitchen. That's not in there. That doesn't exist in the Bible. And then we so often take our lack of specific information that the Bible doesn't have, and we use that as an excuse for not doing anything. Has anybody ever done that? You don't have to put up your hand, but just just think in your own life. Have you ever gone to the Word, gone to the Bible, and you're like, well, I'm not sure what church to go to, so I just won't go to any? Or, 
Well, there's so many ministries at church. I don't know which one to be involved in. I don't know which one I'm good at. So you sit at home. I don't know what God wants me to do. So I'm not going to do anything because I'm afraid of doing the wrong thing. We use this as an excuse for not serving at all rather than as an excuse for doing anything and everything that we can. The reality is is that in the Bible, God has told us exactly what he wants us to do. Not the specifics that we sometimes look for, but he has told us how he wants us to live, what he requires of us. And we find this in our scripture passage of Micah 6, verse 8. Micah, he's one of the Old Testament prophets. Um, And the Old Testament prophets, they're sometimes very difficult to read. Anybody else ever found that? Typically at the New Year, I myself tell myself, I'm going to read through the whole Bible. I'm going to do it. And you get through Genesis, which is pretty interesting. And Exodus is pretty cool, too. And then you get to Leviticus. <sighs> Boy, that you have to really trudge through that, right? It's all the laws over and over and over again. And then you finally get to the end, and you're like, okay, okay, here we go, on to something new. And then you hit Numbers. Oh, anybody ever read Numbers just front to back? Do you, do you know what that is? This guy is the father of this guy, is the father of this guy, is the father of this guy, and it just keeps going and going and going. It's so hard to read. And then you finally, you finally get through that. Then you get to the cool stuff. Esther, Ruth, Job, Psalms, and then you get to the prophets. And sometimes it's just hard to trudge through, through the prophets. Why? Because the prophets seem to be saying the same thing over and over and over again. Doesn't matter what prophet you're reading, it's the same thing. And, and the problem is, is that the Israelites, the, the Old Testament people of God, they disobeyed the Lord. They messed up, and so God is pronouncing his judgment upon them. And it's the same thing every time, over and over again. You have violated the covenant, and I will punish you. It's basically what God keeps saying. And it's in the middle of this judgment that we read these words. And this somewhat rhetorical question, what does the Lord require of you? Middle of verse 8 there. And the reason that it's rhetorical is because of who it's addressed to. The question is being asked of the nation of Israel. What does the Lord require of you? And it's rhetorical because they knew exactly what the Lord required of them. Because Leviticus, remember that? You had to get through that. They know exactly what the Lord requires of them. The short answer is that the Lord wants covenant faithfulness. He wants them to stay faithful and true to his covenant, something that they had clearly failed to do. And what had happened was they had begun to depend on empty rituals and sacrifices to earn God's favor rather than actually upholding the obligations of the covenant. Look in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Micah highlights the fact that they had not only begun to depend on rituals and sacrifices, but that they had escalated in those rituals and sacrifices. A couple of calves, a thousand rams... 10,000 rivers of oil, their firstborn child. And do you understand how, how grotesque that is? 
Like we, we sometimes read about that in ancient history or in the Old Testament. But this wasn't the Moabites, wasn't the Hittites, the Jebusites, and all the other ites that are in the Old Testament. The, the pagans, the heathens, the ones who, who offered their children to the god Molech. No, no, no. This is, this is God's people, the nation of Israel. They had gone so far off the reserve as to offer their own children. Imagine coming to church on Sunday and instead of putting money in the offering plate, the children that walk out the back for junior church, they're, they're going to the altar to be sacrificed. That, that's awful. That, that's, that's disgusting. And yet this is exactly what the Israelites were doing. And it wasn't just because. It was because they were actually thinking that God would be, would be honored. They thought that they could earn God's favor and God's reward by doing that. Why? Why did it escalate? Why did they keep trying to find something bigger and better? Because it wasn't working. It wasn't working. Their spiritual blindness had taken them down a path that had seen them willing to offer anything and everything, including their own children. They were offering empty sacrifices to the Lord, and that's not what he was looking for at all. So what does he require? What does the Lord want? Three things quickly. And because you're all smart, I know you've probably already figured them out. They're at the end of verse 8 there. Number one, to act justly. Number two, to love mercy. And number three, to walk humbly with your God. So firstly, what does the Lord require of his people, his covenant people? What does he want? He wants you to act justly. And this brings in the moral aspect of the law. Justice is one of those things that we all understand, that we all know what we mean when we say justice, but yet it's such a contested issue. We most commonly understand justice to be associated with fairness when it comes to a court of law. When, when a criminal is in court and he stole something and the judge hands out a punishment, a fine, jail time, whatever it is, we say that justice has been served. And if justice hasn't been served, we say, well, that is, that is unjust. Justice. The problem is, is that not everybody agrees on what is just. Do you agree with me when I say that? That even in, in Canada, we have a law, but we don't all agree with that law on what is just, what is proper, what is right. Some of you know this about me, and this is maybe a dangerous thing to admit, but I am, I'm a very proud Montreal Canadiens fan. I love the Montreal Canadiens. I love hockey, and you can blame my father and my grandmother for that. The reason I'm a, a Habs fan is because of them. And uh, my dad, he gave me for my birthday one year uh, a little book on the history of the Canadiens. It's pretty cool. It's got some neat stories in there. And I was reading one uh, about a, an incident that took place Way, way back in 1955. I wasn't there for that. And don't put up your hand if you were there. Well, you can if you want, but how many of you remember 1955? That way before my time, but the Canadian star player, Maurice Richard, anybody know that name? The Rocket? He was their star player, and he was suspended for hitting a referee on the ice with his stick. Basically just chopped him with a stick. And no matter what what sport you're in, that is a big no-no. You don't hit a referee, no, ma- no matter what sport you're in, especially onside. You never hit a referee when you're in onside, right? Well, the suspension was handed out by the commissioner, who happened to be English at the time, from Toronto. 
And Maurice Richard, don't know if you can pick up on that. He's, he's French, playing for a French-Canadian team. And Montreal rioted. They were not happy when he was suspended because the suspension was for the rest of the season and the entire playoffs. So, so your star player is gone for the rest of the season and the playoffs. He's the, he's the first guy to score 50 goals in a season. He's, he's the main guy on the Canadiens team. Well, Montreal rioted. They hated that. They did not like that. They thought it was unfair. It was unjust for the English-speaking commissioner to hand out a sentence like that. Well, the rest of the world, all the Toronto fans, they were happy with that. They were, uh, it's great. Get him off the ice. We got a better chance to win. Well, the problem was is that the sentence was given. Canadian fans thought it was unfair. Everybody else thought it was fair. Well, what was it? An action cannot be both just and unjust. It can be perceived that way, but it cannot be one or the other. It is either just or unjust. What do we do? See, the problem is is that we see that in the sports world and we kind of laugh. We make it into a joke. But it's true for the rest of the world as well. You look at our, our society, our Canadian culture, and half of the people go, that is right, that is correct, that is just, and the other half are going, no, it's not. Well, which is it? How do we know? As Christians, we have a standard. We, we've, we have something that we know exactly what is required of us. And it's not just the Ten Commandments. Sometimes we boil it down to just that. We have the whole thing. Second Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is God-breathed or breathed out by God. Have you ever been outside on a really cold day? Like super, super cold? So much so that when you breathe in, it, it hurts? <laughs> like you, And it just seems like everything inside is freezing. And then when you breathe out, that, that cool little mist, that fog forms in front of your face. My family likes hockey, and so when we're at Grandma and Grandpa's over the Christmas break, we hike back to the pond and we play some shinny. And we're back there regardless of how cold it is. We've been out there in minus 25, minus 30, and we're all bundled up and we're all freezing, but we're, we're skating around and having a good time because we love, we love hockey. But it's so cold that it just, you, you just see it formulate. And God is so cool that God gives us little things in life to help give us direction. And one of the things that he did for us cold Canadians is that when you see your breath, that is a sign to go inside. That is a God-given sign to go inside, get warmer. That's what that means. Just as our breath stands out in a cold Canadian winter, God's breath, it stands out in a cold world, a dark, cold, lost World, A world without hope. A world that is so gloomy that everybody else has no idea where to turn. By God's word, we, we see what the world really is. By God's word, we see what we once were as sinners and what we now are as sinners saved by grace. It is by God's word that we are shown how it is we're supposed to live as those saved by God's grace. We must know his word. We must read it. We must study it. We must cherish it. We are commanded to act justly. How can we act as God wants if we don't know what he wants? 
And I'm not saying that we need to know God's word completely and fully and perfectly because you never will. God's pretty cool that way. You'll never get to the end of him. But do you know his word better today than you did yesterday? Last week? Last month? Last year? Is there growth? Do you, do you know it better? Or does it come out on Sunday and then get tossed on the front entrance counter and left there till next week? Do you know it better? So what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and secondly, to love mercy. In the Bible, it's filled with, with many, many, many examples of what it means to show mercy. Think of the, uh, the story of Joseph, one that we so often tell our children in Sunday school. Joseph, loved by his father Jacob, given a coat of many colors, and hated by his brothers. Why? Because his father loved him so much, and because Joseph was kind of arrogant. He knew that he was the favorite child. So they sell him into slavery. Joseph, he is sold into Potiphar's house, starts at the bottom, works his way all the way up to the top. He's second in command only to Potiphar. Then he gets thrown in jail because of a a wrongful accusation. Bottom of the jail, works his way all the way up. He's the second in jail. The jailer gives him stuff to do because he trusts, trusts Joseph so much. And then... He's still in jail for a long time and eventually works his way to the point where he meets with Pharaoh and he becomes second in all of the world, basically, only to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. That's, that's pretty cool. As second in command, he, he had the power to give life and to take it. And so when a famine strikes and Joseph's brothers, they're sent to Egypt by their father to, to go get food, they don't recognize Joseph when they see him at first, but Joseph recognizes them. And what does he do? He bring down, brings down his ham, hand of justice upon them, and he kills them all. Okay, somebody laughed. At least somebody got that. that that's not what happens. That's, that's not what happens at all. Joseph, he sees his brothers, and he reaches out in compassion and mercy. And he doesn't just give them food. He invites them to live with him, to come, to come just be involved and share in everything that Joseph had worked hard for. He'd worked hard for that power that he had, and he had every right to give them what they deserved. But he didn't. He loved his brothers. And he not only spared their lives, but he gave them all that they needed and more. He withholds from them the judgment that they deserve. I think about the account of David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. That's one that we tend to skip over when it comes to Sunday school. It's a little bit more awkward to talk about with children. David, he's on the roof of his palace one evening and he spots Bathsheba uh, bathing just on, on her rooftop. David, he's not supposed to be home. He's not supposed to be at his palace. The Bible tells us that his army is off at war and it's the time that kings go off to war. David is king and he's not at war. As a king, he's supposed to be the leader, the commander. He's supposed to be there with his army and he's not. Instead, he abandons his responsibility as king and he finds himself committing adultery with another man's wife. Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, just so happens to be one of David's closest friends. I don't know if you knew that. This isn't just some random guy and some random woman that David sees. Uriah, we're told in 2 Samuel 23, is one of David's mighty men, one of his fighting warriors. He was one of the guys that was with David from the very beginning, that fought with David all through the, his escapades, his trials, his temptations, everything that he went through, 
that the, the whole story where Saul is chasing David, Uriah was there. He was his best friend. He was by his side continually, day and night. And David commits adultery with his wife. David is caught in a sin trap when Bathsheba gets pregnant. And his only way out of it that he sees is by having Uriah killed. King David, a man who is famous in the Bible for being a man after God's own heart, has now committed adultery and murder towards his best friend. Both of these crimes were punishable by death. And according to God's law, King David, regardless of being king, should have been put to death. But that's not what happened. David repents of his sin, and the prophet Nathan responds to David's repentance in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13. And this is what it says. The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Mercy is shown to David. That is not what he deserved. He deserved death. That doesn't mean that David escaped punishment. As punishment for his sin, the the child of the adultery dies. But King David, he is spared. We see that in God's punishment of David, he still shows mercy. He withholds back what David truly deserved. God doesn't abandon his responsibility as king and judge over the nation of Israel. But in his actions, we see how to be both just and merciful in one's actions. And through these examples, and there's dozens, dozens more of what it means to show mercy. And we, we just get a picture of what it means to act and to show mercy to other people. But God does not simply say that we must do mercy. We're told to act justly, but we're told to love mercy. There's a big difference in doing something and loving something that you're doing. What do you do when you love something or love someone? You go out of your way to do that particular activity or spend time with that person. The people who really love golf are always golfing. The people who like to read are always reading. The people who like to fill in the blank are always doing that thing. The people who really love each other are always spending time with each other. When you love something, you go out of your way to do it. You actively find ways to be involved with that thing that you love. When you love something, you'll be looking for any and every way to be involved. And we're called to love mercy. So what does that mean? It means that you shouldn't just be showing mercy to people when you have to, because it's the Christian thing to do. I gotta be merciful. Jesus said so. So I guess, I guess I'll do it. If I said that, do you get the idea that I really love mercy? Loving mercy means that you'll be trying to find opportunities to show mercy to other people. And that's hard. Because you want to get back at people, don't you? When somebody wrongs you, like, I don't understand how Joseph did it. How he had his brothers show up and he, he could have squeezed the life from them. And he showed mercy. And I got to do that. And I got to love it. I got to want to do that. I got to go out of my way to do that. That's hard. But that's what he calls us to do. What does the Lord require of you? One, to act justly. Two, to love mercy. And finally, to walk humbly with your God. 
when you got up this morning, most of you probably walked down to your kitchen, popped in the toast, started the coffee maker, sat down, read the morning paper. Does anybody even read the paper anymore? I guess we've got everything on our phones and iPads and stuff. Does the paper even exist? Like, nobody does that anymore. Forget that example. You didn't read your paper, you turned on your phone and checked Facebook or whatever. But how many of you, when you got up this morning, had to stop and consciously think before you got out of bed, how am I going to walk today? Anybody ask themselves that question? Most people don't. Why? Because you know how to do it. Like, we, we all know how to walk, right? It's, it's a habit. It's something that we've, we've been ingrained with since we were a child. Most people over the age of, what, one, two? I don't know when you start. When did kids start walking? Nobody knows. Okay. Whenever kids start walking, as soon as they learn how to walk, you know, you see them, you see them shaking, right? They'll, they'll, they'll grab onto things and they'll pull themselves up and their legs, they're, they're, the muscles aren't, aren't equipped yet. They're not strong enough. So they, they have to actually look down where they're going. But we don't have to. Why? Because it's a habit. Because we, we know exactly how to walk. They don't need to, we, we, we don't need to process the motions of walking because it's a part of our daily life. It's something that we do each and every day. And we're called to walk humbly with God. We're called to make humility a part of our daily lives to the point where it's something that we don't even have to think about because it's so natural. Humility's tricky though, isn't it? Anybody ever struggle with pride and humility and, you know, getting that situated and sorted out? That is hard. And it's tricky, it's tricky because pride just kind of sneaks in anywhere and everywhere. And even on your best days, your absolute best days, where you've been your most humble, I find that at the end of the day, I just turn around and pat myself on the back for how humble I've been. <laughs> so, so that whole day's just out the door. You know, you, you just turn your, your object of your pride to your own humility. That's, that's how tricky and how hard pride is and how hard humility is. And yet God wants us to not just have a little bit of humility, not just have a good day here or there. He wants us to make it a part of our daily life, a daily habit. How do we do that? How, how is that possible? How do we, as Paul instructs in Romans 12, verse 3, not think of ourselves more highly than we ought? That's what humility is. Not thinking of yourself more highly than you should. You're not all that. How do you, how do you get that ingrained into your mind? I believe it all hinges on how seriously we take Proverbs 22, verse 4. And this isn't like a five-step program and you'll be humble. This isn't like, a, oh, here's the one verse. If I get that one verse, I'll be humble. That's not what I'm saying. But listen to this verse, Proverbs 22, verse 4. Humility is the fear of the Lord. So if you want to be humble, fear the Lord. But what does that mean? What does it mean for us as Christians, as believers, as redeemed children of God? What does that mean for us to fear the Lord? Well, in order to get to what it does mean, I think I have to tell you what it doesn't mean first, okay? So what it doesn't mean, it's not a distrustful terror of the living God. It's not a falling in line because we fear the crack of the whip. The fear of the Lord is not an attempt to appease a God who is easily angered. 
The fear of the Lord is not a fear of being squashed. It can't be that. It absolutely cannot be that for us as Christians, and here's why. Because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, verse 1. End of story. Period. Done. If you are in Christ Jesus, you don't need to be afraid of God. That, that's what we're told. For those that are found in Jesus Christ, those who have put their faith and hope and trust in him, there is no fear of the judgment of God because we are no longer under the wrath of God. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. We just sang about that. Jesus paid every debt that I owe because all of my sin was nailed to the cross. And I don't bear it any longer. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Isn't it true? Isn't that true? Isn't that what we were just singing? That I no longer have to fear God because Jesus Christ put every one of my sins on the cross and it was crucified along with him. I don't fear God in that way anymore. Jesus has paid it all. Aren't you glad that it's true that you need no longer fear the condemnation of God because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross? I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. That's it. So that's, the fear of the Lord can't be that. I don't cower in fear. So so if it's not that, what is it? Well, I think to fear the Lord as his precious, redeemed, justified child is to stand back in awe of a creating God and respond in worship. Look at all that the Lord has done. Look at who he reveals himself to be in his word. Look at how awesome our God is and fall down in adoration and praise. The fear of the Lord is a recognition of how great God is and how small you are. Of how infinitely amazing God is and how amazingly insignificant you are. Our problem with pride does not hinge on our ability to push ourselves down to where we think we should be. Our problem with pride comes from us not acknowledging God in his proper place, not putting him on the throne of our lives and this world. So what does the Lord require of you? One, to act justly, to live according to the standards that God has given us in his word. Two, to love mercy, to actively seek out ways to show to others what God has shown to us. And three, to walk humbly with your God. To worship God for who he is. And the old Israelites, this is who this is being spoken to in Micah. The Israelites weren't the only people who struggled with this, who didn't quite understand what God was talking about. In Matthew 23, verse 23, Jesus, he's talking to the Pharisees, who are the religious elite of Jesus' day. They're, they're the guys that are supposed to know their stuff. And this is what he says. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, You hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Jesus, he's explaining to the Pharisees how they got it all wrong, that their religious activity, in this case, tithing, it wasn't the only thing that God was looking for. God wants a lifestyle that reflected a relationship with him. If you know God, you're going to act like this. If you know God, you're going to think like this. And if you know God, you're going to be like this. It's who you are. 
Did you notice that as through these three points, it kind of points itself out. There's a, there's a progression. Things get more intense as you go through these points. Act this way. Do these things. Be this way. Love. Think. Think in this, this realm of understanding and, and be this way. Walking. It, it, it's a part of who you are. Sure, we can all do the right things sometimes, right? Even kids can do the right things. They don't even know why sometimes, but they do the right things. And, and maybe you can even figure out a way to change your thinking on mercy, to actually love mercy. Maybe if you're repeated enough to yourself, I love mercy, I love mercy, I love mercy, I love mercy. I love mercy. Well, look at that. I love mercy now. That's great. But, but to be humble, that's kind of the kicker. That's kind of the one that, to have your life marked by a daily habit of walking in humility with God to the point where when I, when you guys stand up and leave, I can watch you walk out. I see it. It's objective. I can, I can see what you are doing. To have other people see you and see your life and go, that is a humble person. That's hard. That's a difficult place to be at. It just seems impossible, doesn't it? And it is. It is impossible. There is no way that you can do these things in your own strength. And I think that's why it's so difficult. Some people come to the, the Bible and, and we look for encouragement and a spiritual uplifting, and we just find a list of things that we couldn't possibly do. Anybody else ever done that? Lord, I can't do that. I barely got last week's thing done. I, I can't keep up with this. How then? How do we do this? How, how can we possibly fulfill God's word, these, these requirements that he, that he has for us? A couple of weeks ago, we were over at Phil and Jess's place, and uh, it was bedtime for the kids. And so Ollie and Gracie are getting into bed, and Gracie wants a story read. So I clam- clamber under her big bed, and we read the big blue sea or the giant blue ocean or the bottom of the big blue sea. That's it. <laughs> In the middle, middle of the deep blue sea. That's it, the deep blue sea. So we're reading about the big <laughs> the deep blue sea, and uh, and there's, it's very, very quick and easy. It's just like one line per page, and there's an island and the ocean, and then there's a parrot and a butterfly, and at the end, they're all there together. It's a very, very nice picture. And over top of everything, there's a giant rainbow. And I thought, well, that's kind of weird. We didn't talk about the rainbow in the book, but there it is. There's the rainbow. So I asked Gracie, what is that? Well, that's a rainbow. Very good. You know what a rainbow is. It's fantastic. And so I thought I'd just ask a couple more questions. And Phil's standing there. <laughs> And I asked her, well, who saw the first rainbow? And her response was, Jesus. <laughs> that is the right Sunday school answer. And I kind of went, no, that's not the answer I'm looking for. You know, who saw the first rainbow? And I look over at Phil, and Phil goes, well, he is the son of God. And he was there at the beginning. So, I mean, he did see that rainbow. <laughs> okay, fine, you got me. Jesus saw the first rainbow too. Not the answer I'm looking for. So I, so I changed my tactics. I changed my, changed my question. Well, who built the ark? Jesus. <sighs> now I think you're just being goofy and trying to be funny here. But then I look over at Phil and he goes, well, 
Jesus did create everything. Everything was created through Jesus. He created Noah and he created the wood for the ark. So Jesus did kind of create the ark. And I'm going, good grief, you guys are killing me here. I want Noah. Noah is the answer. That's what I'm looking for. And then I had this running in the back of my mind. And I thought, never scold somebody for thinking Jesus is the answer. Because in this case, Jesus is the answer. He's the only answer. We need to look to Jesus. If you're a believer here today, if you trust in Jesus, he's, he saved your soul. He saved you. He's your savior. He's your king. He's your brother. He's your friend. And, and why would you trust Jesus for saving your soul and not for sanctifying who you are now? Sometimes we say, yeah, Jesus is good enough to save me, but he's not good enough to sanctify me, to change me. I need to do, this This is stuff I got to do by myself. He can save my soul, but I don't, that humility stuff, I got to work on that. That's the most ridiculous thing ever. He, he saved you so he could sanctify you. He's the only one who can do it. Can't you, can't you just continue to turn to him for help, for encouragement, for guidance? It's why we read, why we study, why we pray. Not because it's the good Christian thing to do, because it's the only thing to do. It's the only way you're going to get through this life. Walking's hard when you're first learning how to do it. You fell down loads of times, and your parents probably looked at you and said, you're hopeless. No, that's not what parents do. When you fall down, when you stumble, when you couldn't make it on your first try, what did they do? They picked you up, they set you on your feet, and they said, try again. Do it one more time. You're almost there. You can do it. Just because it's hard, and just because you smacked your head off a couple of coffee tables and chairs, doesn't mean you should be discouraged. It means that we should keep trying. We have a Heavenly Father who's better than our own parents. And He'll pick you up, He'll put you on your feet, and He'll say, keep going. Keep trying. Keep walking with me. Walking with Jesus can be hard and it can be difficult, but it is worth it. Ask anybody who has been walking with Jesus for any number of years and they will say it is worth it. Always worth it. Pastor Sam, he's not here this morning. He's been walking with Jesus longer than I've been alive. And I can guarantee he'll say it was worth it. It's worth the pain. It's worth the bumps. It's worth the bruises. It's worth all of that. He's the one that saved you. It's worth following after him. He's the one that called you to himself. And here's, here's the kicker. Here's the one important thing that we sometimes forget in our Christian walk. He's coming back. He hasn't just left us to himself. He's coming back. We sang about that. Jessica asked if I wanted, wanted a certain song to be sung today. And I will always, always, always say it is well. Always, hands down. I could sing that every week. All five songs could just be a repetition of that. I could sing it all the time. And the last, the last verse, and Lord haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound. The Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. You know what that's saying? Lord, hurry up and come back, please. That's what that verse means. Lord, we want you to come back. We want you here. Set up your kingdom. Set up your reign visibly for all to see. We want it. 
We just we want it so bad. He's coming back. So walking with him and getting a couple of bruises here, it's all worth it. It's all worth it. Do you believe in that? Do you believe that to be true? That walking with Jesus today is worth it? That when you come to these passages and you go, I can't do that. And you go to God and I say, I can't do that. And he goes, good job, you got it. (laughs) You get it now. You can't do it. Rely on me. It's always Jesus. Always rely on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I need so much help because I don't rely on Jesus enough. And I know in my own heart, I try to do everything by myself. And I come to these scripture passages and I know intellectually what's true, but I don't apply it to my own life. I don't, I don't trust in Jesus daily. Help me to do that. Help us to do that. Change this church into a, a people who, who trust you completely and wholly. That would just be incredible. Help us to go from this place and be just a little bit more like Jesus. And help us to come back next week and be a little bit more like Jesus. And remind us that when we do have victories, when we do have good days, keep us from falling into pride. Help us to just turn it and praise Jesus. And we thank you for everything that you've done through him, for us, And we just pray all these things in his name, his great and glorious and majestic name. Amen.